So, welcome back to The Birdie Bug Pod, episode 22. Yes, yeah, so welcome back. We're off and running again. A week late, but... We are in a week late again, aren't we? Yeah, sorry. Was that your fault? Or was that I my fault? I think it was a combination of factors. Yeah, well, it doesn't, there's no fault, is there? No. Happens when it happens. Happens, and we are back. Yeah, we're going to do a fun one today because this weekend is... They call it International Bat Night, but it goes on over the weekend, 27th and 28th of August, and it's been going on since 1997. And there are now 30 countries involved, um, the last full weekend of August, and their nature conservation agencies from across Europe get together, and it's really a citizen science and an project, thing. and an awareness project um, of making people aware that bats actually are really cool and some of them need our help and they are well quite a few need and our they're help. fascinating so 27th 28th of august uh, international bat weekend i guess you could want to call it and there's all sorts of fun projects going on all over europe um so this is this will be coming out after yeah the weekend because it will come out on the tuesday yeah, but, but we thought we'd do it anyway and we're recording on the international exactly. bat so night that's weekend right. uh, but we, we're sort of just using it as an excuse to highlight how cool bats are how cool our uk species are and as always just a little bit on the threats and conservation but i think it should that we're at risk of it becoming a very long interesting fact heavy episode of bats because there's a lot there's a lot of cool things oh, i've about got them. a ton of stuff about yeah, bats. so we will try and be concise yeah and i think i think we're also doing it because you know there is a, a misconception about bats which will touch on as we go through the episode um but yeah episode all about bats episode all about bats quick catch up you haven't got I, anything i know it's you? been an extra week uh but i haven't done anything yeah, so. not anything ever <laughs> no well uh, finally the weather relented and i managed to get out to pagham harbour rspb pagham harbour um one evening last week which was just sensational because i've never seen so many curlews there um tide had just gone out timing was absolutely perfect and um uh, your mum was on her binoculars counting upwards of 15 16 curlews on the mud flats uh, i took a little sequence of shots of this curly eating a crab which was fantastic to watch the way it, it was a huge crab and it kept dropping it picking it up by a different claw or leg shaking it till it came off drop the crab obviously dropped it continued to do that till there was pretty much no limbs left on the crab and then it manipulated it down its bill and ate it and it was a fantastic thing you to did watch. get some nice photos sad for the crab obviously but um it was a sequence it was yeah. one of those you've moments. actually been producing some fantastic shots just in general recently yes i'm getting my head around this z9 now which is a pretty a insane bonkers mental camera as far as autofocusing is concerned and i'm which i'm really pleased about it's dropped a lot of money on it and if i hadn't seen a big difference between my d500 and the z9 i'd have been a little bit disappointed but it's totally insane i've still got like, so much to learn with it but yeah that's i've managed to get out do some photography which is what i love doing more than anything in the world is sitting on a nature reserve watching curlews or in fact it wasn't just curlews there were so many wading birds out there from oyster catchers red shanks egrets gray herons sandpipers all it was great it was just great. So that was my catch-up, and it was I've, I've decided I am going to speak in catch-up. I have got something to say. Oh. Uh, not Well, actually, it does involve a bit of activity, and as I always 
preface things on this podcast that these are very much my own views and I'm not here as a Rivers Trust employee. I'm This is separate from my actual work, but we do have a very cool, we talk about citizen science a lot yes. on this podcast. And in September, we will be launching a cool campaign where people can go and stand by their river for 15 minutes and use a brand new app that we're developing to fill out a survey about wildlife and pollution that you see. So it's a very nice, accessible bit of citizen science. It has been announced on social media. It will be launching properly on the sort of 22nd to 24th of September. But just to say, keep your eye out because it should be quite good fun. We talk so often about getting involved in citizen science. Yeah. And this is a very accessible and hopefully quite a nice little... and as And as plugs go, I quite like that one. Yeah, so <laughs> I've decided instead of doing catch-up, I'm just going to promote my <laughs> promote Rivers Trust Mate, things. Nothing wrong with that. I saw, but, the, I saw the post on, on yeah, your uh, page. And... There, there'll be a few more posts coming, but if you want to learn more, just go and have a look at the Rivers Trust social media because we have spoken about it. Um, and I will definitely be doing that. I've walked down the banks of the River Arran quite a lot, so I should definitely yeah, do that. Yeah, it should be quite... Quite a nice thing just to go and spend 10 minutes by your river and answer some questions. So I'm just going to use that as a little plug. Aside from anything else, you do the intro video, don't you? Yes. Uh, I, I, instead of being out and about doing photography, I was being filmed and had to try and read from a script, which was quite tricky, but I had a, had a lot of so fun doing it. So are you the new it. Chris Packham? No. <laughs> I certainly not. <laughs> but I, had a, I did have a lot of fun. We were getting a bit concerned that we might get pushed into the river by some cows who kept getting rather close while we were filming. Uh, but they they were a good audience, so. right? But yeah, it was good fun. So just keep an eye out for the big river watch. Yeah, that's a, I like that. That's good. Yeah, hashtag yeah. plug. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good plug. As plugs go, that's a good one. Anyway, bats. So bats. Do you want to introduce? Because you're you know you're good at this stuff. Do you want to introduce what the bat is? Yes, I'll talk a little. I've got a little bit on their cool evolution and a little bit of a mystery that surrounds them as well. Um, so most people, I, I would imagine, know what a bat is, but they are the only true flying mammals. We you have see things like the flying squirrels, but they are not actual flying animals. They are just gliders. So they're the only mammal to have evolved proper powered flight. Uh, I quite like the fact that the name of the group that they belong to, the family uh, Chiroptera, yeah, I think is how you say it, means hand wing in Greek. Yeah, um, which is just quite a nice little bit of, of background on on their name they are actually an incredibly diverse or very species group of animals with the the second biggest group of mammals so rodents are there are more rodent species than any other mammal species followed closely by bats they they make up a fifth of all mammals and a quarter of all british mammals uh, but from a Oh, I should have said there's actually there's 1,400 species of bat in the world. I said there's a, there's a lot of them. That's a, a number to, to yeah. That 1,400 phrase. species is a lot. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of bats. Mm. Um, so they they pop up in the fossil record about 50 million years ago, during the Eocene um, period, and obviously this is after the the dinosaurs have gone extinct at about 65 ish million years ago, which is then sort of where the burst of mammal diversity really came from once the large dominant reptiles have been wiped out. But the, the slight mystery is there's sort of a, a 10 million year gap between that event of, of the dinosaurs being wiped out and our first complete recognisable bat fossil. And so you, we don't have a lot of like what you'd call intermediates, that they were likely glider type animals that then developed powered flight. Uh, but we don't really have any fossils to, to fill that gap. And in fact, actually, quite a lot of the ancient bat fossils are just a single tooth. <laughs> and that's what we're basing. Oh, really? It's just one one wow. tooth that they've discovered and worked out that it's a bat. Um, 
the main reason for this is probably that they are very much forest dwelling animals and forests are especially tropical forests are famously bad at preserving fossils that's actually why there's a big gap in some of the primate evolution is because we were very much forest dwelling and they just don't preserve fossils very well it's all very damp and things degrade very quickly so yeah they, they popped up as recognizably a bat about 50 million years ago but the fossil record is quite incomplete the last thing I'll, I'll say on their evolution which i think is quite a neat little fact is they're actually more closely related to humans than they are to mice oh i saw that yeah so you'd look at them and think oh it's sort of sort of rodenty with wings but they are yeah. closer on the evolutionary tree to to humans than they are to, to mice which i just thought was quite yeah quite interesting interesting yeah uh, I mean, I can keep going with the fact, you know, the, they span a, a great range of sort of weight. You've got the largest bats in the world being flying foxes, which are your big fruit bats, and they're sort of two-meter wingspan. Yeah, they've and, got massive wingspan. Yeah, and they yeah. can weigh up to one and a half kilos, yeah. so it's a, a big, chunky animal. And then on the other side, they actually represent one of the smallest mammals in the world with the bumblebee bat, which only weighs about two grams. So a huge range of yeah. sizes when it comes to yeah, we're going to also talk about uh, a couple of UK species as well. There's 18 apparently in the UK, which I was yeah, surprised I, I about. Didn't, I wouldn't have been able to name 18 bats. And in four the UK. of them are red listed as being risk of uh, extinction. And we're going to just we're going to highlight a couple of those a bit further on down. Once we've <laughs> we've done the myriad of facts about bats, yeah, I seem you know to have what? so many of them. I'll, I'll just throw in another one. I quite like the fact that. Over 300 species of fruit depend on yeah. bats for pollination, and that includes things like bananas, avocados, and mango, yes, as well as cocoa uh, or cacao. Yeah, and also and, for you that you people out there that love tequila, there would be yeah, agave. Yeah, absolutely, um, they're pollinated yeah. by bats. Especially us as our as vegan agave nectar replacement yeah. for honey. So yeah. bat, you wouldn't necessarily put bats in a in a pollinator category, no. but they're actually really quite important. There's um, some really great facts. People, people, I think, have this uh, misconception again that bats are blind and use echolocation because they're blind, and actually that's not true either. No, not bats all have, of them use echolocation. No, and they, they often only ever use, the ones that do use echolocation is only trying to, uh, to locate uh, food in the dark, obviously, but mostly bats have got very good eyesight. Yeah, if you think of the fruit bats of yeah. spotting brightly coloured fruit in yeah. the trees rather than echolocating a fruit. Yeah. And they are found almost everywhere on Earth, uh, apart, apart from, the from Arctic's. polar regions. Mm. Yeah, so uh, and extreme deserts are not found there either. But so there's lots of there's lots of things I've learned actually. Bat droppings, guana. One the, yeah, one of the best fertilizers in the world, yeah. and also it can be used to make gunpowder. Did yes, you know that? I did see that because it's very high in potassium nitrate, which is saltpeter. Yeah. Um, then they use that to make gunpowder, which um, obviously I don't think there's a lot of gunpowder made these days, but. <laughs> They obviously did. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. Uh, what else? Do well, you want I to quite like the. I think, I think there's probably a an idea. I think I would have held this, um, mis not yeah misconception that they're not particularly fast if you compare them to a bird. Yeah. Uh, I think you sort of you see them sort of flappering about rather than like you get the nice diving peregrines. You wouldn't necessarily put them in the same category as as a rapid flyer, but they they have actually quite recently been clocked 
hitting at really quite impressive speed. There are some that sort of average around 60, 50, 60 miles an hour, but one has been clocked at 99 miles an hour, which was the Brazilian free-tailed bat. Wow. Which is it's a shame we didn't quite make the 100, wasn't it? <laughs> it puts it... Actually, I've got it as 99.5. Oh, so. I bet he was gutted. <laughs> the, the caveat I will put on this, so this was... Uh, that puts them in the category of some of the fastest like horizontal flyers because obviously when you look at like a peregrine's record it's diving rather than going horizontal but there is some debate about this max speed and the study that clocked it whether there was um wind helping them and the wind assisted yeah so the, the actual conditions of that measurement make the the claim that they're one of the fastest and hitting 100 mile an hour something to take with with a little bit of caution but regardless of that assistant it still shows that they are capable of hitting yeah. some rapid speed yeah. so take the actual number of 99 miles per hour with, with a slight pinch of salt but still just recognize that they are incredibly fast and incredibly agile flyers. yeah well, of course if they're they're catching insects on the yeah. wing all the time so that's their that's pretty much exclusively their well in the diet, uk isn't there it? are the lots UK. that eat fruit we only have insect eating bats in the uk we don't have any fruit bats like the flying foxes, who are obviously known for their for being massive in comparison, um, but yeah, those the, the little bats that are snapping up moths and beetles and flies, they're they're going to be agile and they're yeah. Be quick. I also want to, I also want to say that bats are a really important part in play a very important part in habitats around the world, and they are an indicator species. Yes, so that's a yeah. You know, we talked about indicator species before like curlews actually they're an indicator species of the, of the, of well. the condition of the of the environment and the biodiversity and of course feeding primarily uh, pretty much exclusively on on insects and invertebrates that once they are on decline that's a sure, you know a sure sign that something's, insects are yeah, declining something happening. and there's an imbalance somewhere so they're a really important indicator species and they're they're you know, that again, we'll talk about a little bit about the cultural side as well. Obviously, the famous one being Dracula and vampire bats, and obviously there are blood-sucking bats, um, vampire bats. Not many. I think there's three. Yeah, species. sucking is always a slight. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, they're important as well, and they've been they've been significant contributors to medicine, um, especially for humans with blood clotting issues, so that they're. The anticoagulant in their saliva has helped researchers investigate and develop drugs for that, for hardening of the arteries and cardiovascular disease. So, you know, they're a really yeah. important little animal. Actually, on on that, as a, I don't think I noted down the number. Obviously, I've, I've referenced 300 species of fruit. I did also see, and, and I have forgotten the number, that a large number of medicinal yes, plants I think it was 80. are also pollinated by 80 bats. 80 species yeah. of plants that you use for medicine are pollinated yeah, by so bats. So again, as a, as a human impact and reliance on them, yeah, it's, it's weird uh, little things you wouldn't even consider. I feel a bit sorry for bats because there is this misconception about them, that, that they're dirty, they're disease-spreading. COVID, of course, the COVID pandemic hasn't done them, uh, hasn't done them any favours whatsoever. And we've talked about this in the past where... Um, Things like that have has uh, restricted and stunted uh, any campaigns, or not any, but many campaigns for their conservation and funding for Same their with conservation their protection laws and their protection and, laws yeah. because of that misconception about the fact that they're they're disease ridden, they spread viruses. COVID did them a really yeah, no, bad. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's 
it's so, still not really known exactly which animal that no. came from anyway and it's also i think a, an important thing that a lot of the zoonotic or the animal based viruses and diseases that hop over the species barrier only ever do so when they're kept in sort of human force yeah. conditions alongside animals that they wouldn't normally be alongside so it's very rare that it would be just a wild not just bat but like a wild pangolin which was the other yeah. one that got a bad rap that's somehow given it's normally only because they're in somewhat unnatural yeah because i think i think the thing with the the um idea that it came from a bat from the far east um it, it was bats that were kept in these yeah, it wet was, markets yeah. and and again the origin of that is not really still not conclusive no. so we can't put it on anything but no. it's only ever when these animals are kept in somewhat unnatural conditions alongside a variety so, of species but it really hasn't helped the no it hasn't the, given them a good image the, has a it? good image no it, it really hasn't and it's a bit unfair that you know they they are actually very clean animals they they clean themselves as well as cats do it's a very similar thing they're they actually kept very also clean. incredibly cute like <laughs> yeah, if people are. think of them as being i don't know like evil or associated with things like vampires and halloween and stuff if you ever actually look at a, an up close picture they are adorable they yeah. are really quite so which is interesting because normally it is the adorable cute fluffy animals that garner all the conservation yes. efforts and yet they've sort of been side-listed because of their bad rep and yet they're they've got a very bad rep not, not in every civilization no. on the cultural side actually mostly um western cultures in particular have regarded bats with superstition and fear but not not all civilizations they're a sign of good luck in china, china aren't they very much so good fortune longevity and happiness apparently but um there are a few other little facts i really like that they've got odd feet so that they're like us, we have when we relax our hands open. It's the opposite yeah, with bats. How they not all bats hang upside down. No, not think, all but... bats do. But they when they relax, they're, feet they're clench. Particularly when their body weight and they're on something, they're when they relax, their feet close, and that's one of the reasons why they can hang upside down. So which easily. is really quite cool. So it's not actually putting any pressure on. They're not gripping. It's just sort of a, re- a yeah. relaxed state. So. Which I guess makes sense because you can't really sleep if no. you're like tense. So yeah. you'd need to be in a relaxed, yeah, relaxed absolutely. Session. So there's some there's some really good facts about bats, aren't there? Yeah, I also brought they're in... A, they're a really interesting little animal, actually. The, the pallid bat, which eats scorpions and is immune to the venom uh, and actually eats some of the most like famously venomous like bark scorpions in, in America, uh, which I, have, I saw in Arizona. They're beautiful scorpions. Um, and actually at certain times of the year... Uh, 70% of their diet will be made up of scorpions and again I think you you very much have the image of well they're going to be taking flying insects and scorpions yeah. are not flying uh, so it's, it's an odd, it's not something I would have associated as part of their diet um, no definitely not there is a bat out there that fills the niche of a scorpion hunter which I just think wow. is, is pretty cool that's very cool but yes yeah, so lo- lots of lots of cultural connections to bats mostly superstition and fear and um, uh, vampires, obviously, with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, lots of, I mean, in the Bible, the bat is seen as unclean and its nocturnal activities ally to malevolent spirits. Um, it's just unnecessary. William Shakespeare equated bats with witches, spells, and curses. Um, there's an irrational fear of bats, which actually goes alongside their uh, their. Uh, scientific name which you gave earlier on and it's called chiroptophobia um, 
and that encompasses negative perceptions of bats as disease vectors and pests of harmful creatures associated with devils and witchcraft. So they've got this whole thing about devilry and witchcraft and superstition. Yeah, no, I guess because you always associate them also with Halloween. Don't yeah. You? Like bat decorations for Halloween. Yeah. But I've got a really good one here. It's a, I don't know any, if anybody's ever noticed, but the Bacardi logo is a bat. Oh, is it? And the reason, Actually, I don't think and I, the reason why yeah. it's a bat, they, they notice that bats, um, they pollinate sugar beet. So obviously there's an awful lot of sugar that's used in the production of rum. Yeah, that makes sense. So the the people as they were uh, developing the Bacardi uh, as a rum, you know, the rum drink, noticed that there were a lot of bats on the sugar beet plantations. So they they thought that'd be really cool. That is cool. To use well, I, the bats yeah. logo. So if you check the Bacardi logo out, I think it's a black bat on a circular red background. Did you spell Bacardi? <laughs> B-A-C-A-R-D-I. I don't know whether it was Bacardi or Bicardi. Bacardi. So, uh, yeah, so they're, they're very... They're, oh, yeah, so it is. Yeah, so it is. So there That's you go. really cool. Which is a really cool thing, isn't it? So, um, But, yeah, lots of lots of, um, of references to bats uh, down through the... Ancient Greeks believed that bats had supernatural powers over all birds and animals. Well, I mean, um, echolocation is not far off. Yeah. Supernatural. Yeah, so um, Hinduism, uh, bats symbolise one of the forms of the goddess Lakashmi, who worshipped for who was worshipped for good fortune and supernatural wealth. Mm. Uh, Japanese bats consider bats a symbol of protection or river protectors, known as kumori or river protectors. So there's all sorts of. It's interesting. We we do have what is commonly called a river bat in the UK, ah. Dorbertons bat. I hope I've got that species correct. Um, I should do because I did a post on them at one point. Um, where unlike a lot of our bats, they actually fly quite low, uh, like just above the surface of our rivers, and that's predominantly where they feed. They also use the rivers as like a commuting highway, which is quite cool. But they're, oh, okay. they're known as the water bat because of their tendency to live by the rivers. Oh. Which, again, it's not a habitat I'd necessarily associate with a bat. But I was thinking in Japan if river defender or yeah, yeah it would yeah, have yeah. to be some sort of some river protector yeah. or yeah which is that's really cool anyway i could go on and on and on uh but we won't because what <laughs> this, this episode will end up being rather long so um so yeah out of the 18 species of uh, uh native species in the uk we're going to just highlight a couple of them i think i said earlier on there's four that are actually red listed as being close to extinction in this country I think um, I've, I've my one is the grey long-eared bat. Yeah, and I've got the barbstell. Yeah, um, that might be one that's not so well known. I must admit the barbstell. Okay, I mean, I can, yeah, I can chat about it just as a quick introduction yeah. to the UK bats. Um, as I've mentioned, all the UK bat species use echolocation, and all of our bats eat insects. We don't have any fruit bats. I quite like the little fact the the common pipestral. Uh, there's a variety of ways of pronouncing that. Uh, which is, if you see one in your garden, it's probably a, a pipestral. Uh, or can... pipestral. Pipestral, yeah. Or uh, pipestral. I think pipestral actually sounds better. They can eat over 3,000 insects every single night, which is wow. quite cool. Um, just as a quick life cycle thing, they typically breed in autumn uh, and sometimes even into the winter just as they start to hibernate. Uh, but the females don't actually become pregnant until spring. They store the sperm and then a pregnancy begins in spring. They only have um, one pup as well. Yeah. And it's called a pup, which yeah, I thought was quite is, fun. Which is cute. Uh, I also quite like the fact that the pregnant females actually gather in what are known as maternity roosts. 
Uh, and yeah, they can last between six and nine weeks. But yeah, they typically give birth just to just to one little pup. Just so do hibernate as a just little quick life cycle for when you're most likely to see bats. Uh, but yeah, I'll chat about the barb still. Yeah, which is yeah one of our red listed. It's actually one of our rarest bats, and so they're quite tricky to study and monitor because they're just not very common. Uh, they are pretty much limited to the sort of southern half of of the UK, so you don't find them up north. But they are quite a unique looking bat. So they're sort of medium sized, but they've got a really distinctive pug shaped nose and really broad, thick ears that join across the top of their head. And then they've got sort of silky black brown fur with white tips, but they're really quite identifiable by their pug like face, which they look oh, a little bit squished cool. up, yeah. which is quite cool. Amazingly, their average lifespan is actually up to 23 years. Well, I was again, this is something I've learned about bats is that all of them They're are quite, quite long lived. Yeah. Um, so I think when you typically, when you think of small mammals, the lifespan normally drops. You've normally got a high, high fast, high fast, <laughs> fast heart rate. Yeah. Uh, and they lose a lot of heat. So they use up a lot of energy, small mammals. And so things like mice and rodents and all those sorts of things typically don't live very long. Yeah. And yet a lot of our bats are quite small. And yet even on the lower end, they're still living six, seven, eight years. Um, and then I think some of them have even clocked in at sort of 30, 40 years, at, not as an average, as sort of the record holders. But they are they are quite long-lived. Which yes, is... I think also that often long-lived animals uh, are more prone to conservation, conservation issues, issues, especially and giving extinction. birth to only one yeah. pup as exactly, well. You can, yeah. you can lose... If you lose, uh, no one population, it's difficult for them, or most of the population, it's hard for them to build back quickly because they're only giving yeah. birth to to one to one young yeah. at a time. Um, so yeah, they live in the southern half of Britain. They are sort of woodland roosting bats. They they actually are known as a, a part of a group called crevice dwelling bats. So rather than you often think of them in, in old buildings, in lofts, in churches, uh, under roofs, that sort of things. Whereas these bats, bats like living inside sort of decaying trees or trees that have been split with a nice big crevice in them, which is actually one of the reasons why they are struggling as far as the population is concerned. Um, they have a particular favouritism for oak trees. So if you've got a nice big oak tree with a big crevice or a split down it, that's absolutely ideal. Uh, they eat almost... I'm not going to say almost exclusively. They eat mainly moths, uh, but they do also, uh, they will also take things like flies and beetles. Um, and they actually start feeding within the woodland where their roost is located until it gets darker. And then they will go out and forage much further afield into things like parklands and wetlands and meadows. Uh, and they can actually have a nightly sort of radius of about seven kilometres as far as for, for hunting. So that they do travel quite quite a distant, uh, and they they rely. And this is nothing which we'll get onto when it comes to the sort of threats to bats. Is they rely on certain landscape features, almost as like commuting uh, lanes. So things like vegetated highways, um, like big hedgerows, essentially create their highways, and that they, they use them as we would a road. And so as we start to lose things like hedgerows and and uh, we we trim down all of the shrubbery and stuff like that, they almost lose their their motorway system for finding their I think it's that ground. fragmentation as yeah. well that we talked about on on many of the species specific episodes where the landscape is being fragmented um anyway we'll talk about yeah. those threats um, a little bit further down the line yeah I've, I mean I've got reasons for their decline and most of them are very similar to the general uh 
threats to bats overall. So I won't touch those. The, the two that I will highlight as sort of being slightly more tailored to the Barbastel is that because they're rare, that they're actually quite hard to monitor. So accurately determining their population, how fast the decline is, where it is that they're declining, it's just difficult to really keep an eye on their population. So that is one of the reasons why it's perhaps harder to I don't know, create a nice project tailored towards their conservation because it's tricky to work out exactly where and why they're declining. Um, and the other one, this is actually across all of Europe, not just the UK, but they actually have one of the narrowest diets. So like I said, they, they do eat mainly moths. And so they're not necessarily the most adaptable. So if something happens that impacts their preferred species or their preferred sort of diet, they're not necessarily able to be like, okay, the moths are down, let's let's eat lots of beetles. They're, they're quite a specialist bat, which makes them again, potentially, well, not potentially, it does just make them more vulnerable to yeah. habitat changes and, and things like that. But yeah, the barber still, cool little, pug, little flying pug bat, yeah. <laughs> essentially. But I'd love to say I'll go to this location and see them. Very rare, very tricky to see. So it's not one that really people can flock to and, and always twitch like. No, a it's a it's a similar story to the grey long-eared bat. Um, a very similar story actually. They're pretty much confined to uh, southern England. They're restricted to a few colonies in Sussex, Hampshire, Isle of Wight, Dorset, Devon, and Somerset. So sort of along that southeast corridor. It's there. a bit like yeah, chatting about the nightingale. Yeah, a little bit like that. In fact, uh, again, very rare um, and very difficult to try and determine just how many there are. Uh, there's speculation there's only about a thousand of these bats left in the UK now. Um, they're, they certainly live up to their name because their ears are almost as long as, as their body. So they're, they're really cute little things with big ears. I would challenge anybody to find a bat that isn't cute. Yeah. I think all of them are adorable. Yeah, and their habitat um, is more uh, older houses and buildings and churches. Um, they can be found th- roosting through those, uh, you know, through roof voids and all sorts of things Which like that. Which is interesting because it means when we get on after this to, to talk about the threats, our two struggling species are slightly different. My barber still relies very heavily on woodland yeah. management, whereas yours is going to rely very heavily on building yeah, advice very and much, building yeah. management. Yeah, so... Um, so their diet again is is quite similar to your bat as well, um, moths mainly, crane flies and small beetles. So they've got quite a narrow diet, and another reason why you know they're struggling. Yeah. I think given the um, nighttime activities of bats, I think we always assume they will be a moth hunter because that's the other nighttime yeah. creature. But yeah. forget how many other insects are out and about for for bats to actually dine on. Yeah. Um, but they're very long-lived and they're very social. Uh, females again only give uh, birth to single babies in um, you know in one one season. Yeah. So Which, if you see if you ever see a, a mother bat hanging upside down, often the baby is clinging to yeah. it. And I think that would make sense. You can't really have a, a litter of like <laughs> ten <laughs> baby bats hanging on. No, to that would be a bit difficult. It takes away it? the nice relaxed yeah, really thing. It's so a really good point. It, it sort of works that they have one that will hang on to them because they they hang on and drink milk from their mum like like all mammals before i think it's like a few weeks before they start flying out and and you know learning uh the ropes of their own but you just wouldn't be able to have a a mother bat with a litter of 10 yeah. pups just hanging from yeah very much you still got to fly and stuff um they can also be found in um caves rarely but the caves and old mines and cellars and things like that but um again as i said earlier along on it's very difficult to determine their population and what's left they know that there's not many. Yeah. Um, 
there could be as few as, as as few as a thousand left, but it's not an easy one to to determine. And again, the reason for their decline is a, a very similar uh, story that we tend to cover every episode: loss of wet and species-rich meadows um, in urban environments as well. Um, that's the predominant cause of population decline of this species. And other reasons, of course, it's a loss of roosts uh, in urbanisation and barn conversions. Old buildings, old getting, buildings getting redeveloped. Which I think um, is what we touched on in Swiss. Swiss, absolutely. Yeah. So that that change in the use of uh, old buildings, in particular, or the you know buildings being uh, taken down for redevelopment, and uh, is having a huge effect on yeah. uh, on this particular uh, species of the bat in this country. So. Uh, but there are other things as well. Artificial lighting. We'll go on to um, some yeah, of the I think threats. We'll but perhaps we'll move on to the threats now because yeah, so um, there are there are a few. I think because whereas we normally touch on a single species, the threats are quite specialised to that to that species. And you know we're covering essentially eighteen UK bats. Uh, they they do. I mean we've seen there the difference between the barbstone and and your um was it grey long long eared yeah. They do inhabit a variety of of different um, sort of roosting areas, whether it's old buildings and churches, or whether it's split trees or caves or mines. So there's a there's a slightly more diverse range of threats, as well as you know we always touch on land management and stuff, but they do have a few niche threats, which I think I'll start with, which maybe people don't always think about, is artificial lighting. Yes, and again, this isn't one which we've ever had to touch on when it comes to birds or, or anything else, but the placement, intensity, and timing of lighting can really, like, quite dramatically impact the behaviour of bats. So, obviously, especially the UK ones, are nocturnal. And so they are really very sensitive to light. One of the biggest problems is it can delay and sometimes completely prevent their emergence from their roost if it's just too bright out. Because they don't fly during the day. They do have predators. Birds of prey will, will like sparrow yeah. hawks will take them. And so it's a lot safer for them to come out at night. If you look back to what I was saying to the barbastel, they'll stay within their sort of roosting area in the woodlands as dusk sort of around it's dusk time. Owls as well. Owls will, will take, take them. them. Yeah. But as soon as it starts to get much darker, so most of their predators would have gone to bed, that's when they start going further yeah. afield. So if you, they've still got light blasting into their roost they're not very likely to come out or they will come out much later which then impacts the amount of time they've got to feed they'll sometimes miss what's known as the peak feed time which is a, a just just after dusk which is when most of the insects come out and then that will greatly impact their survival rate their growth rate for their young all those sorts of things they're missing that real key feeding time it has even led to bats completely abandoning or even, quite sadly, becoming entombed in their roosts if the entrance is just too consistently yeah. lit up. Uh, slower flying species, like lesser horseshoes, greater horseshoes, and, and a few others as well, will actually completely avoid illuminated areas. And so if then used to travelling X number of kilometres to their feeding ground and then you've got a new road built that's got massive artificial lighting and it blocks them and they will avoid that, you've suddenly effectively cut their foraging ground in half or by whatever measure. If you've got a forest where they all live and then they would normally emerge and that forest is surrounded by motorways and, and artificial lighting, suddenly they're confined within a much smaller area, limiting all their feeding, the species available for them to eat, all sorts of stuff. So it almost acts as like a trap. It sort of stops them or hems them in or disrupts their, their movement, which is really quite... 
quite sad i think yeah. um it also you do sometimes get you get some bats that almost adapt to it because artificial lighting like a lamppost will attract a lot of insects you'll get your moths and your beetles sort of congregating around that light some bats will start feeding around lights but it has shown to increase their risk of predation and things like that yeah. so all in all artificial lights can have a massive impact on yes our, and on wind farms as well wind farms is another one that's having an impact um but it, it, it's often it's often um we talk about this so many times intense farming methods um obviously has led to a huge decline in insects they are the top nocturnal predators yeah. for flying insects and um heavy pesticide use pesticide use poor water quality yeah, poor soils we could go on and on development and land use poor development and land use change all of those uh pressures that are affecting the bat population yeah. quite dramatically now. yeah and often through the impacts of the insect population like, like you mentioned yeah uh, the other one which is slightly more tailored to to your woodland roosting bats like like the barb cell is overly managed woodland so like i said they like they need a tree that's got some crevices and some splits and some uh, almost like decaying areas and often those habitats are cleaned out you know a tree if a tree falls down or is i know damaged in some way it might be chopped and clean uh, cleared out to keep the forest sort of almost tidy and we've spoken about this i think probably in the stag beetle episode about overly tidy woodlands yeah they actually need the less tidy it's like messier broken up bits of tree and so overly managed areas of our, of our woodlands is another threat to the roosting abilities of quite a lot of our bats there are some countries as well that um view them as a delicacy and obviously yes. we, that we we not We've here in the touched UK. a little bit on the Far East, um, and they've been hunted to near extinction because of that in various places across the world. Um, the the other one, which I think people... We always talk about the impact of cats on birds, but our domestic cat is another big problem for bats. They actually don't typically eat them, but they will play with them and injure them and essentially kill them, but not for food. Uh, what I didn't know is some cats will actually learn where the bat roost is and return to catch them as they leave. So it almost becomes like a nightly game. Once mm. they start leaving the roost, they will just it turns into like sort of, yeah like a cat a cat game. So domestic cats can impact our bat population as well. Uh, the last one I had was white nose syndrome. Yeah, that's that's a not that's not good, is it? Which is obviously a virus, isn't it? I think it? it's a fungus. Actually. Is it a fungus? Yeah, um, it causes millions of deaths to bats in the USA. Um, apparently in some hibernation sites roost numbers will decrease from 80 to 100 percent so just you know completely wipe it? it out no not 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 very well other than the fact that it's a fungus yeah. that can spread um is it just specific to bats oh well, look, i should have done all this research oh no i've caught you out now white nose fungus bat cold loving fungus that infects bats during hibernation uh, it reduces their metabolic rate, lowers their body temperature uh, when, well, so what they're doing during hibernation, and the fungus essentially just attack, attacks them. And they do get this like, right. fluffy white fungus growing at the end of their nose. Um, Say so it's particularly pre- uh, prevalent in America. It has been recorded across Europe. I think 17 European countries, including the UK, has had cases of. Uh, white nose fung- uh, white nose syndrome they call it but it hasn't actually been linked to any mass deaths in Europe yet it's not quite as uh, I don't know it's not quite as detrimental to them I don't know whether that would change I'll be perfectly honest my research on 
uh, white nose syndrome as far as I don't know why it's not so bad in the UK compared to the US is not quite there. Uh, but it is something that we have to, yeah. it is something that I guess could potentially get worse. Did okay. you have anything on white nose syndrome? No, I, I read about it. I knew that you'd do it. Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they essentially catch it from being in contact with other bats that have it. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a skin issue and it is mainly something that impacts them during hibernation right. rather than during the summer months. Yeah, so there are there are a myriad of threats yeah. to bats. Um and uh but there are there are good news stories there about are good bats. news stories and, and actually and, and lots of organizations well not lots but a few organizations doing a lot of work doing a lot of work the bat conservation trust is is the main one is the main and one and they are there's like an umbrella bat conservation trust and then they have their little local bat conservation trusts yeah um but they they are an incredible organization that do a, a huge amount of work and i think they are the only organization in the uk solely dedicated to bat yeah but there are obviously general conservation uh or animal conservation organizations that will do a bit of bat work but the bat conservation trust is just truly dedicated yeah in fact they did in fact this is quite specific to the the little bat that i was chatting about the gray long-eared bat um they do a back from the brink yeah which we mentioned again in a in another episode and actually that's a that's a project to try and aim to save 20 species from extinction and they concentrated on the gray long-eared bat um as part of that back to the back from the brink and um again it was all a an educational thing trying to educate farmers in how that they how they can maintain some of the habitats that are good for for bats so they did a fantastic project on that and there are a couple of other places as well that were doing specific ones for my little gray long-eared bat which i'm getting quite fond of fond of next tattoo maybe yeah (laughs) yeah maybe yeah so um i'll get a barber still yeah (laughs) yeah so um and there are some good news stories they're two of britain's rarest bats the greater horseshoe and the lesser horseshoe um after long-term monitoring of those up and between 1999 and 2022 indicates that um that they are on the increased population the population's on the increase and again that has come from a huge amount of work of yeah, there's a lot of effort behind the conservation campaigning uh for habitats for these uh for these bats and, legal and protection is, and yeah all exactly sorts. and in fact it, they're all legally protected now all 18 species i think are yeah. legally protected in this country um but the campaigning as you've just said over a, a long period of time is now paying off and those yeah. two species in particular I think there's been increases of 233% for the greater horseshoe and 187% uh, for the lesser horseshoe, and that's since 1999. So it's big numbers as big well. Big numbers. I think it's important to say, and, and we've mentioned this in so many episodes, so this is one where it's it's particularly key, is a huge amount of the Bat Conservation Trust's work is in citizen science and monitoring, yeah. and so they get brilliant volunteers who not don't have to give up a day but actually give up their night time uh, someone i know who used to work in the lab that i worked at used to do this quite frequently and would come into work knackered because he'd been out volunteering for the yeah. bat conservation trust where you you do it through echolocation you have a, a bat detector and we haven't really touched on it because there's just there's too much to talk about when it comes to bats but they each have their echolocation in, in slightly different frequencies and so you sit there with a bat detector and depending on the frequency you're picking up that's how you can tell which species you've got 
But it, again, a bit like these bird surveys, it relies on lots of people across a lot of areas all monitoring it. And the only really viable way of doing that is through citizen scientists. Yeah, and of course and, that's a lot of what's going on this weekend. As much as there are lots of there are guided walks um, across all of these countries, some of them do walks and talks, um, but a lot of it also is that citizen science of data recording. Yeah, getting people out there Getting surveying. people out, surveying, counting, recording. Um, bat activity and all of that, uh, all of that data. Yeah, I have. I've done a couple. So important. I've done a couple of bat surveys. Actually, not for the Bat Conservation Trust. It was up for a project in when I was at uni, and it, it's one of those. It's it's really quite exciting because I was just sat by the side of a road in, yeah. in a camping chair with a flask of hot chocolate and a bat detector, and then suddenly you get this little peak on your on your detector, and, oh my, and suddenly it's a horseshoe bat. And it's you haven't even seen it. It's just a thing, yeah. but it's really exciting just to to detect the fact that they're flying around and. They, they've emerged and, and you've got that species in the area so it is it's quite a fun thing yeah quite a fun thing to get involved with um but it is a massive part of their work and as you've mentioned there are some good news stories and and the the national bat monitoring program the a recent study has shown that of the 11 species that were being monitored they all seem to be either stable or slowly yeah. increasing which the, is fantastic it news, is incredible it? news the slight caveat is that because of prior to this period where they're increasing they saw massive declines it's quite a long way for them to actually build their population back up but the fact that we've we've turned that corner where lots of them aren't even stable they're actually going up is just a sign that things are working um and and the effort that these this organization in particular are uh sort of putting out there it is starting to show that it works i think a lot of what they do is just just advice and education uh so We've mentioned they, they inhabit quite a variety of different sort of niches for their roosting, whether it's advising building uh, sort of legislation or farmers or homeowners. You know, what, you, what to do if you've got a bat in your loft, you can put bat boxes up as well, uh, whether it's... Yeah, going... Actually, we talked about that with swift bricks yeah, swift and everything. Bricks. And I know I mentioned on uh, for a, an example of Brighton and Hove uh, District Council making it a regulation that swift bricks now have to have to go into various developments it's the same with back boxes yeah. now back boxes are being included now in those regulations which is just brilliant which is absolutely because brilliant you can understand the desire for people to upgrade an old building you know more insulation especially to keep energy prices down all that sort of stuff it's not an unreasonable thing for people to want to yeah. modernize their home but you can still do it in a way that doesn't demolish their habitat and so by sticking a bat box up in where in what would have been an old roost, suddenly yeah, and, and also worlds. and also then you've got bats in your garden. And well, and the other thing talking about the garden is that we talked about rewilding and just putting nectar-rich plants into your garden, which Bring attract all the insects. insects. In. Insects, then you know, as we said, bats eat insects. So it's this whole cycle, yeah. And this little, these little things that can make a difference. We think they're only little things, but they. If we all do it, it makes a huge yeah. difference. And again, know? it's we, we've spoken about it, and I imagine every species episode, the fragmentation of habitat is, is a big threat where what would have been a big open woodland or big stretch of land now has pockets of housing. Yeah. By turning every garden into somewhere they can feed or refuel, yeah. it rejoins all their habitats up. And if you, I think we did in our potentially our old house i know we did in our old house very occasionally if you look out the window at night and you see a little bat flapping about it's, it's just exciting to yeah. think there's a bat in the garden yeah. and so it's a wonderful thing to with absolutely no downside to the fact that you've then got pipistrels you know, what, what i'm discovering is more and more 
in every episode. I know we talk about all the same things as far as the threats, but that habitat fragmentation... Yeah, it's massive. ...breaking up those... You know, that connection between habitats is becoming such yeah, a I mean, significant thing, isn't it? In one of our very first episodes being the hedgehog, which is yeah. sticking a hole in, the, in your fence so yeah. they can travel, and then you've got migratory birds that need to refuel on their way, and so suddenly they've lost that, so gardens need to provide yeah. them with refueling. And that's Same, the, what I was going to say, is it makes your garden become more and more important as yeah. those habitat habitats are fragmented, our gardens... Are fill reconnecting gaps, or fill the gaps. Yeah. If if a if what was once a woodland is now a housing estate, yeah. if you can all if every garden has then got a couple of trees and some nectar rich plants, yeah. you've lost the woodland still. But at least there's something. It's not just plastic grass and concrete. Yeah. There's still yeah. feeding, water and sleeping habitats available to all the animals that have lost what would have so been and their I, key and I habitat. Think, and I think that sort of just puts the power know, back into puts, every individual, yeah, which it, is lovely. It definitely doesn't. It makes sometimes you sit there and think do you know this is we we can't make a difference it's it's too big a job to make a difference but actually it's, yeah, we it's, can we can't we really all go can. buy however many acres and rewild an entire forest but we've all got not all of us lots of people are fortunate to have a small section yeah. of land all it takes is a few trees a few nectar rich plants and if you're lucky a pond yeah and suddenly you've done a huge amount not just for birds but for bats for yeah. insects for hedgehogs for your foxes for literally all of the wildlife and it's just and also because we do that we sit there thinking you know we can't change policy we can't force governments to do anything but we we can plant a tree but we can plant the tree and we can fill our gardens full of and if you want to go the extra mile get involved in a bat survey yeah Um, but um, uh, yeah i'll I'll round it and i like all that yeah i do i do as well and and again it gives real levels uh you know people may look and oh i I haven't got time to give up my nights for a bat survey that is very very understandable yeah but there are still things. Put a bat box up, plant nectar yeah. plants. There's there's something that everyone can do yeah. uh, to benefit our wildlife. And and to say it's just for wildlife, I mean, who doesn't love sitting in a garden with a tree? So it's it's a nice thing to do anyway. Yeah. Um, but what I just wanted to highlight is the real prevalence of their of like the bat conservation trusts advice. Like I say, it can go from building developers to road planning and artificial lighting to They've got a fantastic project called Bats in Churches yeah. about maintaining the ability for bats to, to nest because churches bats are, in the belfry. Yeah, they're, they're some of the obviously the oldest buildings that we have, and so they well, are do you know, key talking about that bat habitat, and we don't want to lose them. Well, I've got a nice little fact there about um, about bats in the belfry, which is actually where the um, where the where the phrase gone batty always oh, gone batty is it mad? and it relates back to bats in the belfry in churches so bats in your head batty and so there's all that sorts of little cool. references yeah. oh, and there was one also about about um the expression of batshit crazy but <laughs> which actually i don't know how true this is but there was a little thing that we found um hang on yeah I, we don't, I don't know if it's folklore, but apparently it it there was a reference going back to the Second World War. Uh, and there's a story of the Japanese soldiers hiding in island caves, sometimes knee deep in, you know, in guana. Bat, yeah, or bat shit, if you want. And many soldiers apparently would be infected uh, by something in the bat feces and lose their minds. And so that would make them totally irrational and un- make them do uncoordinated like attacks it. on American soldiers and somebody 
said that's old the Japanese soldiers have gone batshit crazy now I don't know how much truth there is <laughs> in that or somebody's just made that up and put it on the internet but I quite like it I quite it. like it maybe I mean I can't imagine inhaling like ammonia and stuff is going to do your mental yeah. state too much no. good so but I do quite like that I always like I never touch any research on the cultural stuff because I, I like to sit here and learn about the fact yeah. that these species have potentially have weaved their way through human yeah. culture for, for generations so yes, I hope bat, that one is true. Yeah, so Bats in the Belfry was the other one that I, I found, and that sort of Bats in a church steeple, you know, crazy ideas in a person's head. Yeah. You know, they've gone batty, you know, so uh, yeah. anyway. There are a lot of jokes I wanted to make, but I feel like they'd be quite inappropriate, so I'll leave them for yeah, off air. Yeah, I think um, well, you tell them to me later. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think you'll probably find our show notes, in the, the links will be slightly sparser than usual because I, I think we've both leaned very heavily on the Bat Conservation Trust for this information because as far as the UK goes they really are the central hub uh, for all things Bat whether you want to learn about the species the issues yeah. what it is that they're doing so it's a great website actually. yeah I will obviously link them but I would definitely recommend if you want to learn about their projects the advice they get there are pages and pages of advice for if people find a bat or if people want to develop something for water quality but whatever aspect it is of sort of building and civilized development it somehow will impact bats and they will have advice on it and so it really is an incredible resource but it not only for general interest but it really does highlight the variety of work that they do and the the fact they can't just campaign to save woodlands they've got to campaign for everything (laughs) they've got to come up with this legislation advice on everything and so it's a really difficult thing to do because you can't just approach one sector whether it's the sector that deals with woodlands and say here's your advice you've got to do it for motorways and yeah. churches and lighting and, and also, just um, all of it so it, it yeah. really does show and the fact that our bats are improving just shows that this advice and this legislation this campaigning works uh so all credit to everybody out there bat conservation trust or not who has had a hand Definitely. in fighting for our bats because it's fantastic to see news articles where not just one species, but collective species are turning the corner. Definitely, and I th- and the, and the things like this weekend, um, and hopefully what we've done today is to highlight actually it's such a cool little animal. Yeah, we, this it's, could be hours it, long. It's it's very important. Like all animals in this, in, you know, in the in the cycle of life, circle of life, same thing. Um, you know, they're, they're they're a really cool little animal. They've got this awful misconception about them all the superstitions around them and supernatural and the, um it's not true they're great little animal they're really important and they're they are stunning they're, they're yeah they're really cool they're so really uh, hopefully we've highlighted the fact that bats are great yeah <laughs> that, that is pretty much the point of this episode we haven't bats gone are great too heavy on the research i'll apologize for my lack of information on the white nose syndrome but the main point with it being International Bat Night Weekend yeah. is they're really cool. There's they're a lot great. of interesting facts. We've literally just scratched the surface. Oh, honestly, so I've still got pages and pages here. Go but... go read more about bats. And yeah. Maybe this time next year we'll do a part two. And we'll yeah. cover all the we things we do. haven't covered. We could covered. do loads, loads um, more on bats. And I think the very last thing I'll say is it is giving up a night. But if you ever get a chance to do a bat survey, it, it is quite a fun thing. And yeah. it's a really valuable citizen science uh, project to get involved with again bat conservation trust are a good hub they have their local trusts so wherever you are in the uk you'll have a, a local bat conservation group to get involved with and if you do get a chance to do a bat survey yeah sometimes you end up sat on the side of the road all night with a little bat detector but it is, it is quite 
is quite an interesting. I've got to be honest, I haven't done that, and it, it sounds like it, really it is good fun. fun. It is fun. Just it's just very different yeah. sort of wildlife experience. Yeah. But you get weirdly excited when you see that little blip, and you know you've got a horseshoe bat flying. Overhead. And also, you know that, that lovely, comforting thought that you're um, you're making a difference. Yeah, to you contribute know? to it. Yeah. We wouldn't know that this conservation efforts are working if it wasn't for the citizen science data collection. So. That's one of the reasons why I started doing a little bit of volunteering here and there, because however big or small the contribution is, I feel like I'm making a and difference. It's still however a slight, I'm making, or at least trying to make a difference. You, you know? will also find that you meet lovely people. Everybody, really are, everybody yeah. involved yeah. I've ever come across with, whether it's bird survey, yeah. bat survey, insect survey, the people out there who are giving up their time for conservation, just they, they're just such wonderful people. So you will end up meeting great people uh so even from a social aspect if you want to get out definitely bat survey have, have at it yeah it's sounds good great fun. i'm gonna do that yeah i recommend it yeah I might we're in a good spot for bats actually. yeah we are well we're yeah we're southeast yeah. of england so <laughs> yeah so, we, so we need to do that but and there it is we'll, we'll stop rambling yeah i hope you've enjoyed learning about bats we certainly have yeah and i did not know how many we had in the uk which is quite abysmal for somebody with a zoology degree <laughs> Oh, well, you can't, know, you can't know everything, can you? No, but I feel like I should have done. Um, but we'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for very listening. much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.